I woke up this morning and went through to the kitchen and there was a raspberry, a lone raspberry um, sitting on the counter. And I knew what I knew, I knew why the raspberry was there and what it was intended for. And it's that Ilan likes to vary Hercules, our dog's food, and includes some fruit for the antioxidants. But mm. he doesn't want Hercules to have a cold breakfast because nobody wants a cold breakfast. So the raspberry gets brought out of the fridge about an hour before Hercules gets his oh. breakfast to warm up slowly to room temperature. Oh, oh dear, dear, dear Hercules. Such a I know. nice, slightly mad little dog. Hello and welcome back to Don't Touch Your Face, Foreign Policy's weekly podcast on the coronavirus pandemic. I'm Amy McKinnon, a staff writer with Foreign Policy. And I'm James Palmer, a deputy editor at Foreign Policy. On this week's episode, we're going to look back at the AIDS epidemic and what lessons it holds for the pandemic. We'll be joined by Zio Mora Lopez, a longtime HIV survivor and activist, and Dr. Abraham Verghese, an infectious disease specialist and writer. But first this. Staying informed has never been more important, yet information is coming at us faster than ever. So how do you make sense of it all? Start here. Hey, I'm Brad Milkey from ABC News, and every weekday we will break down the latest headlines in just 20 minutes. Straightforward reporting, dynamic interviews, and analysis from experts you can trust. Always credible, always solid. Start here from ABC News. 20 minutes every weekday on your smart speaker or your favorite podcast app. So before we begin, I have to belatedly wish you a very happy birthday, James. It was yesterday, and yes, but thank you, Amy. I said belated. I, I said know, belated. I know. Well, I had to explain to Christina, you know, Christina doesn't really understand birthdays being American, and so I had to explain to her, you know, the, princi- <laughs> the principles of birthday law, like that, that you don't have to do any chores, you know. <laughs> it's, of uh, course. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, that you get to tell everybody it's your birthday, you know, all these sort of mm-hmm. things that any eager six or, in my case, 42-year-old um, gets to apply. Exactly. And talking of milestones, this is our last episode of the podcast. For a while at least, but yes, we've decided to pause things for now. And for today's topic, we felt like there's still so much uncertainty ahead about where this pandemic goes, how many people will be affected, how many people will still die, when will a vaccine be developed, where will the next hotspot be? And everything just feels so uncertain that we decided to look back at the AIDS epidemic and the peak of that during the 80s and 90s and look at what can be learned from that experience and what we can draw from that about where this current crisis may be headed. Earlier this month, there was a fantastic essay in the New York Times by Alexander Chi, and I'll include a link to that on our show notes on the website. There was a line in there that that struck me. He said that amongst a lot of HIV activists in the early days of the pandemic, they'd been writing on social media and, and talking, saying, this virus is not that virus. And clearly, the difference between HIV and the impact it has on people and communities is radically different from the coronavirus. But he added an addendum to that and he said this virus is not that virus but this country is still that country and I think that's what we want to look at today because there have been some interesting parallels in the way in which ideology, discrimination, ignorance were put before science during 
the HIV epidemic to devastating consequences. And we're seeing all of that playing out again today, all of these years later. You know, it's something that I've been very aware of since the since early on in the uh, pandemic, because I live in a, a neighborhood that's traditionally gay. And mm. a lot of my neighbors, particularly my elderly neighbors, are gay. Mm-hmm. Um, and they lived through AIDS. Many of them are survivors. Many of um, many of them are HIV positive. Um, and they brought it up, you know, from the very start. Um, yeah. It was very visible uh, around around Dupont in signs, in conversations with people in the park. You know, all this kind mm-hmm. of thing. So that that memory and but also that sense of of hope because I mean a lot of the language was sort of you know we survived we survived that we survived this but there was a, a mm-hmm. certain cruel irony of course in the fact that if you know if you were a twenty five year old gay man in uh, nineteen in nineteen eighty say you're you're sort mm-hmm. of you you know you're sixty five today you're kind of at the at one of the peaks of possible risk in terms of still being mm. working and still having to go out but also being in a really vulnerable group. Um, yeah. You know, when you talk about America still being the same country, of course, mm-hmm. all throughout the all throughout the AIDS epidemic, there was this sense that it, it hit groups that didn't count. Gay mm. men, Haitians, uh, drug users. And mm-hmm. it was only when, it was only the, the acceptable victims, as it were, that got the attention for a long time until, right. until things like changed. Like blood transfusions and... Mm-hmm. And there was, uh, and you, you, you know, you had the phrase sort of innocent victims of AIDS that went went around um, in the early stages, um, which seems so, you know, incredibly sociopathic now. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think that language mostly hasn't been as explicit during the pandemic, but that that sense that some lives matter less has really been there. Um, the elderly, the disabled, people of color, and so on. The fact that the bulk of the 120,000 deaths in America or more at this point have been among those groups has I think mm-hmm. really taken down the the sense of impact on American society the sense that these deaths yeah. are or, or mainstream American society the sense that these deaths aren't are somehow not really real yeah one of our our guests mentioned that it was a huge factor in the during the AIDS epidemic that um if this if if that had been a disease that was affecting white Republicans, that the Reagan administration would have acted radically differently. And I, coronavirus is different. Clearly, anybody can get it and nobody is immune. But as you say, I mean, I think at this stage, black Americans are dying of COVID at three times the rate of white people. And I, you know, given everything that Trump has said and everything that, that he stood for, it's hard not to think that if this was a disease which was running rampant in white suburbs that he would have acted quite differently i mean I, I guess the question is now you know as the pandemic sort of hits these new states and these much whiter and much more conservative states will there be that sense mm. of will there be that sense of second impact or is or is it now such a culture war thing you know like mask yeah. wearing versus non-mask wearing that that the denial will continue you know even as these as these communities die but one of the things that I was, one of the things that I've been thinking back on is, you know, just that sense of how different the world was when we were kids. I mean, obviously, you were a kid a little more recently than I was. What do you mean when we were kids? I'm a spring chicken in comparison. Well, well, back in the 1980s, Amy, before you were, when, when you were just, which I, which I've, I've, I read about in history books. Yes. So back in the 1980s, when 
Amy did not exist, um, and I was a, a beautiful child. I, I mean, I can just remember how intensely nasty the media was. I remember reading, you know, mm-hmm. even then, being a horribly literate child, looking at the papers and, and seeing this language and just being kind of the nastiness of it on a scale that doesn't really exist anymore outside of, like, the furthest reaches of the of right-wing media. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... On the one hand, you know, there is that sense of having made progress and of being in a better place. And on the other hand, there's the fact that we've so utterly failed in dealing with this pandemic in America. Yeah. And that sort of despair whether anything has changed. I mean, one of the, I think, unsettling things about the coronavirus pandemic is, well, I feel hugely fortunate to have so far touch wood. I've been spared. My family has been spared. You might be the only person I know who's gotten it actually and then I just keep thinking that there are going to be whole pockets of communities in this country neighborhoods families um so many elderly care homes where there are multiple victims multiple people seriously sick and so it's you know the grief is not evenly distributed around the country there's pockets you know there's parts of the place there's parts of the country that are very very seriously hurting and then whole other parts where this is kind of still something you read about on the news and the HIV epidemic was just I think that whole experience but magnified tenfold Mm. in that it ran rampant through such you know tight-knit communities and you had people's partners dying and and them themselves having HIV caring for caring for sick partners and knowing that they one day may go this the same way and I think I remember reading that in the mid-90s, when at the point when protease inhibitors were released, which were the first really effective treatment for, for HIV and turning it from a death sentence into a manageable lifelong condition, that the death toll in New York City at that moment was 60,000, which is huge for one city. But then it wasn't even just New York City that that, that was affected. That was 60,000 from very select pockets of communities. And then you can't get your head around that grief that layers of grief upon grief upon grief you know i think the you know the communities that are being hit like this nowadays are are fairly unusual the things like hasidic jews in new york where people have lost Mm -hmm. as as we mentioned in previous episodes um dozens of people but Mm -hmm. the other thing is i think that that sort of um sense of individualized fear is less this time because it's it that sense of like well there's a you know there's a 20% chance I'll get get it and a 1% chance I'll die if I do as opposed to that mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. real sort of ticking down you know and um that people felt of the the this I remember you know a friend of mine in Britain saying that it was it was like the grim reaper had your address book and wow. yeah yeah but just just you would go down and you would and you would sort of tick off names and so, you know, even though the the impact of this, on the one hand, is so much greater, on at the community at, at the community level, it was so devastating in the eighties. Yes, yeah, yeah. And actually, you know, we're wrong to talk about the HIV epidemic as something of the past because it's very much still here. You know, there are new infections going on all the time, and again, it's still very tightly concentrated around certain communities. I was looking at some CDC data from a couple of years ago and they were saying that if current trends continue one in six men who have sex with men 
will be diagnosed with HIV in their lifetimes. And then amongst black men who have sex with men, that's that could be up to one in two if current trends continue. Um, so HIV is very much still around mm. and is very much still here, as are the long-term survivors from the 80s and 90s who were diagnosed in that especially scary time before effective medications came out and and there was so much uncertainty about what the future held. Earlier, I spoke with Mora Lopez, who is a long-term HIV survivor and activist, to get her perspective on what it's been like living through the HIV epidemic and now the pandemic. Uh, it has been somewhat an awa- a reawakening of the fears and in certain uh, times that we were living in back then, too where not much was known mm-hmm. about how it was transmitted, how you could prevent from getting it, how you could um, be sure you had it, what were the symptoms. And in the early days of both, um, there it, it was an evolving science. You know, the HIV was evolving. And now with mm-hmm. the coronavirus, you'd hear a list of symptoms. And then a week later, there were symptoms added on. And it was frightening that, Mm -hmm. you know, you're not a medical expert. You don't know what to look for either times. And it was Mm -hmm. a serious flashback to the early days with HIV. And as someone who's lived with HIV for almost 30 years, how have you been dealing with the pandemic? Uh, It's a state of hypervigilance. It's a state of constant fear. Mm -hmm. Um, The first month of it being in the news the first thing I was looking up every day was, is there any information or are people with HIV more at risk? Is just having HIV making us Mm -hmm. more at risk, less at risk, the same risk, something. Every morning, my daughter wakes up to the lovely scent of bleach in the house because I bleach (laughs) everything from one end to the other to her bedroom door. Mm -hmm. And she wakes up, opens her room and she's like, "Ah, mom's mad at it again. Yeah, (laughs) And I'm like, you know what we're both here we're both safe neither of us has gotten sick and as far as i'm concerned that's a win in my book and she's like yeah okay i agree but i think that's the one thing is like i know what i'm doing to prevent it from my front door but once i step outside Mm -hmm. of my front door it's scary It's, it's it's angering to see people with masks on their chins on their elbows, on their heads as decorations, you know, in like up by their hair, holding their hair back, but not on their face where it protects other mm. people, only mm. me. What are you hearing from other activists and other people who've been living with this for a long time? How, what's their experience been of the pandemic? Between one thing and another, there's like two camps within the HIV community. There's one camp that says, oh yes, there's so many similarities. And then there's a com- another camp that says there is mm. nothing in common. The isolation that is caused by both viruses uh, to individuals is amazing. Mm. And I think it is just magnified to a thousand percent with the fact that everybody, even though we're healthy, we have to isolate to keep healthy. Whereas people with HIV yeah. are isolating because of social stigma, because of family um shaming uh because of Mm self-stigma with their status and Mm -hmm. long-term survivors of of the hiv epidemic as we're aging it's becoming even worse is the isolation we feel Mm -hmm. between losing friends Mm -hmm. and family we've lost along the way as we're getting older we're just closing in our Mm -hmm. circle of, of friends and it is 
devastating. Last month, when the United States reached 100,000 deaths um, from the coronavirus, the New York Times devoted its entire front page and several pages of that edition to listing just 1,000 names of, of people who had died. Um, and it, you know, it was a very moving landmark moment as to just where we are with this pandemic. Um, and I saw a friend of mine posted on Instagram the front page of the New York Times the day that HIV AIDS deaths reached 100,000. And it was a small corner. And it wasn't the, fr- it wasn't the first page either, was it? It wasn't the front page. Um, do you know what? Let me check. What? Let me bring that up. Let me bring that up right now. Um, because I remember saying I remember seeing the tiny little thing highlighted and it was below the fold and it wasn't the first page. I don't believe it was the front page they said yeah here we go um, there was an article in a British LGBT newspaper yeah it was on January 25th 1991 that the uh, death toll for AIDS in the US reached 100,000 it didn't even warrant a front page headline, nor was it on the second page. It was, it was 18. Yeah. Yes. What do you think that tells us about the difference between the two crises? Still, the, so- the social stigma attached to HIV is ongoing. It's pervasive. It was as bad then. Um, to this day, uh, you know, it's still it, it's still a, it's still a, a, dif- a difficult topic to, to mm-hmm. speak about in public for a lot of mm-hmm. people. At this point, I think I know in person, I know more people who do not want to be associated with having mm-hmm. HIV publicly mm-hmm. than the than the ones who are out in public. Do you think that we were naive going into this to expect that? the US government would do enough to protect its citizens from a virus? This government we have right now? No, it doesn't surprise me. Um, I would have thought there was more power spread throughout government that his me, me, me mentality wouldn't overrule every action taken in this country to protect its citizens. And I am very mm-hmm. disappointed to find out that is not the case. How are you feeling now that a lot of states are starting to reopen? I am grateful to be in New Jersey, uh, even though we had a very high infection and death rate in the county in which I live. I live mm-hmm. right across the Hudson River from New York City. Um, Hudson County was one of the first or second highest in, in the state of New Jersey in, yeah. in cases and deaths. And I am grateful that I live in a, con- in, in a state where the, the governor decided to do all those horrible, unpleasant stay at home and restrictions and shutting down the parks and every one of them I hated. And at the same time, I respected and it was terrifying. And at the same time, it was reassuring because you were doing something. Yeah. It wasn't just you weren't just waiting for this wave, tidal wave of disease to, to roll over and, and just knock you out. I sure wasn't. I, I've lived with HIV for 26 and a half years. I wasn't going to take this lying down. I was going to arm myself with knowledge. I was, you know, online reading 
scientific or medically based or, you know, uh, NIH reports, anything I could get that was on the scientific side of it. I am a medical technologist. I have a science background. And a lot of the more complicated reports make sense to me, which helped. Mm -hmm. And it, it armed me with knowledge on how to protect myself. And now seeing these people that on the news in Florida, they saw what was going on in New Jersey and they saw what was going on in New York. I have family down in Florida, South Florida. And they actually called me up and asked me, is it really that bad? Are, are people really dying? I mean, they make it look so horrible in the news. And all I could think of is, my God, they have 18-foot refrigerated trailers in the you know backs of hospitals to store bodies because they don't have enough morgue space. Does that not sink into you when one hospital has like four 18-foot tractor-trailer containers to store bodies that doesn't you know drive it home to you how horrible it is here because they can't turn over the bodies with the morgues and, and have the bodies laid to rest somewhere how how is that not getting through to you and now everybody down in south florida and my family is like oh wow this is for real and it's like mm. welcome to my reality for the last three months and it scares me that that they didn't learn from our lessons that was Zero Mora Lopez, a longtime HIV survivor and activist. The coronavirus has swept the world and forced drastic measures to defeat it. It's also proving, though, what is possible in the fight against another major global threat, climate change. Heat of the Moment is a new series by FP Studios and the Climate Investment Funds. It tells the story of those on the front lines of changing the way that we eat, travel, and live our lives. This podcast outlines not only the great challenges that face us, but also looks for a new path forward. Look for Heat of the Moment wherever you get your podcasts. So I feel like when the pandemic was was gaining speed and the coronavirus was picking up around the world, we spoke about this on the podcast, and it was something you saw discussed a lot in the media and on social media that, you know, as you said earlier, for most people who don't have underlying conditions and are otherwise healthy and aren't on the older side, you have a good chance of surviving this. But that we all need to be careful, that sense of, of communal responsibility of, you know, to, even if you're 20 years old and a robust athlete, taking care because you don't want to pass on to somebody's grandmother, a cancer survivor, you know, anybody with an under, underlying condition. And I feel like as the lockdowns are starting to lift, that that sense of communal responsibility is just gone. You know, I, there's a bar that I walk past when I take the dog out for a walk and it has the front deck open and the tables are not six feet apart. And, you know, they're crowded with like groups of six or eight people around it, you know, having some wings, having some beers as if nothing's happening. And I, I can't help but feel like a lot of people have decided, OK, so I might get it. Life goes on. And that, that sense of, yeah, you might get it and your life might go on. But who do you give it to? Who do you pass it on to that that? has now been lost and I got a very stark reminder of that um last year I did a I did a long story about HIV long-term survivors and my main subject of that story was an activist called Sean McKenna and he lives in New York and 
NY1, the New York TV New York TV station, actually did a segment about Sean and his partner because his partner works in a grocery store and so is one of the most at-risk people right now. And Sean is at home having lived with HIV for, I think, over 30 years. I, I can't remember exactly when, when he was diagnosed. But the lengths that they are having to go to, they live in this tiny one-bedroom apartment in Manhattan. And his partner comes home every day, goes straight into the shower, puts his clothes in a bag, mm-hmm. you know, washes himself down, disinfects the mm. bathroom, goes back, disinfects the door. They're, you know, He's sleeping in the bedroom, Sean's sleeping on the couch in the living room. They're wearing masks in the house. And you know, there's this one line in the segment where Sean says, I didn't survive HIV to die from COVID. And that's why we have to wear masks. Our next guest, Dr. Abraham Verghese, He was a doctor in rural Tennessee during the AIDS epidemic and saw a startling number of patients for a rural area. And he actually gave me some hope. You know, with his long lens of perspective, he was able to see not only the devastation that these viruses have caused, but also so many bright spots where science and human solidarity have come together to really bring about change. Here's our conversation. It's really interesting for me to feel the echoes of that epidemic, which now seems very much a a matter of history. Uh, I was just completing my infectious disease training when the first cases began to appear. And it's astonishing to think back that we went for almost, I think, two and a half to three years without knowing what was causing this, other than it was a new phenomenon. And uh, I think many people were embarrassed by the different editorials they put forward postulating that it was caused by this and by that. And so the the pace at which that thing evolved was, uh, or at least the science evolved, was so much slower than Mm. it is now. And it was about uh, three years before we knew we had a viral cause. And at that moment, I think all of us thought, well, now it's over. Well, we have the cause and we'll find Mm -hmm. a cure and we'll be done. But once the blood test became available, it, it was apparent that for Every one person we saw in the hospital, there were probably several hundred out there, and everything we knew suggested that they would have the same inexorable decline that we were seeing in our hospital patients. So I think the full magnitude didn't sink in until almost five years into it. And then, of course, we had this long, long period of uh, not having any effective therapy, which was so frustrating. And even now, I think we managed to control it, which is huge. Uh, but we have by no means eradicated mm-hmm. the virus. Nevertheless, it's a nice place to be, a place that I actually thought we'd never come to. I think we went for years and years in our clinics just watching young men, mm-hmm. mostly at the time, die uh, with a sense that this would go on forever. So there are echoes of that playing here right now, but the big difference is that uh, the pace of the science has been extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Just to watch how quickly, within weeks actually, we had the entire genome for this virus mm-hmm. sequenced. Within weeks, we had the clear understanding of what receptors were involved. Uh, what we haven't done a good job of, and this should not be entirely surprising, is the human reaction to mm. the virus and the the reaction of governments and so on. I think Camus said many years ago that uh, in his famous book, The Plague, that you know war and pestilence have been occurring since mankind was uh, on this planet. And 
yet every time it happens, it takes us by surprise. Yeah. And it's actually astonishing to me to read old narratives such as Camus, but also Defoe, and watch the same elements, you know, in mm. play. It comes down to governance, it comes down to communication, it comes down to human behavior, which is a thing apart from yeah. the virus. Why do you think that is? Because that's a question that I've asked myself a lot during this, is particularly as we watched how rapidly it spread in China and then in northern Italy, why did leaders elsewhere in Europe and the United States not get the message of how serious this was? Well, I think we're in collective mm. denial and have been, you know, very much like Camus says, we just don't want to believe that such a thing can happen. I must say, even in the community of infectious disease specialists, of which I'm one, we've been saying for years that such a pandemic mm. would happen. And uh, I actually thought it would be avian influenza around uh, 2007 or eight. And yet, uh, when it actually began to happen in Wuhan, I think all of us kept thinking that, well, this will probably burn out because we've been extraordinarily lucky with things like, uh, relatively lucky with things like SARS and MERS and so on. Uh, and so I think, you know, we're just not really ready to accept that such a thing can really happen, even though all our science told mm -hmm. us it could. And we should have been a lot mm -hmm. better prepared. You know, one of the great lessons of public health of history is that uh, human beings are, you know, notoriously unable to control their mm -hmm. behavior. I wish mm -hmm. we could. Uh, you know, we learned this most, most reliably with sexually transmitted disease, where, you know, it's one thing to preach safe sex and so on, but um, clearly the body's urges are not always amenable to, uh, to the cognitive mind inter intervening. But here, I think it's even more acute. It's almost as though because the behavior that's being requested is not one of, is not as profound a behavior as, say, sexual restraint or mm -hmm. abstinence. It really is asking people to wear masks. It's asking governments to plan ahead. And I find myself just really disappointed, uh, less with individual people, uh, the common man and woman on the street, but more with our government. I think that, uh, you know, we just needed uh, humanists in government, we needed people with a better appreciation of mm. history, with a better knowledge of, uh, of you know, novels like The Plague and Defoe's, uh, Defoe's uh, Plague as well. Because I think lacking that, you have this strange phenomenon of watching people reinvent the wheel and go through these stages, which you would think a civilized society could easily shortcut. Yeah. Yeah. Every time you have a disease, whether it's cancer or tuberculosis, you always have a metaphor. You know, the metaphor of tuberculosis was an excess of romance. It was something mm. that happened to people like Keats. You know, they, they, they died of tuberculosis, almost, you know, you know, succumbing to emotion, if you like. And cancer had a very different metaphor. Mm -hmm. And I think the metaphor of plague has always been an interesting one. As we said, it's one of the other. It's one of casting blame. And I think in this case, at least in the United States, there was a lot of time wasted and still being wasted pointing fingers at China and here and there as though it matters. You know, this yeah. this virus is an inanimate, almost it's it's a life form, but it certainly isn't engaging in any of these political thoughts as it crosses from species to species and then from one human to another. And I think it's just silly to watch this play out when you would think history would let us get past that. Mm -hmm. I mean, to what extent do you think that the coronavirus and particularly the 
the way it has run so rampant around parts of the world. Do you think that that is a metaphor for the times that we are living in? I think it's a metaphor for, you know, some narratives that seem to be in parallel, but I think they're all one big narrative. And the, mm. you know, the most relevant one is the narrative of us as humans, basically just desecrating forests and jungle. And the more we do that, the more we will run into wild species that have no business infecting humans, except that we continue to encroach on their space. I mean, that's true of Ebola, Marburg, perhaps of HIV as well. And I think it's also true of this uh, new coronavirus. But the other narratives that are also confluent with this, you know, the, the, uh, the, the mass awakening of our consciousness about race that seems to be happening, mm. you know, based on our original sin in 1619 of the slave traders coming with their slaves. I mean, that, that has really been very much part of the story because this virus has exposed the underlying inequities of our healthcare system. We don't need to just defund the police. We need to defund healthcare, take away the kinds of perverse initiatives that allow us to make, you know, huge amounts of money providing very narrow care to people who can pay and ignoring the inequities of people who are living in crowded circumstances and are not getting basic healthcare. So I think these are a lot of compelling narratives that are all weaving together exposed by the virus. So to answer your question, yes, I think it's very much a global phenomenon that reflects one story. And that is what comes with, you know, the sorts of progress, the downside of the kind of uh, merciless progress that we sometimes engage in without a thought to the environment, without a thought to, you know, humans as being one race, essentially, mm -hmm. no matter how we wish to segregate them. Yeah. What lessons do you think that we can or should learn from the experience of the HIV epidemic to be applied to the current day? Well, my, my take is that, you know, we really need on our corporate boards, we need on governance, people who have a better appreciation of humanism and of history and mm. who are steeped in, you know, the lessons of human history. So, you know, the little uh, blow up at Condé Nast would that really have happened if they had a humanist on their board? Uh, you know, mm -hmm. some of the planning sessions that you uh, you and I have witnessed, the news conferences, the absurdity of them, can that really happen if we make it a criteria that we elect people who are truly educated in a manner that will protect us? I mean, I don't really care mm -hmm. about their political affiliation. I care that they protect my children uh, and not make stupid decisions that put us all at risk. So I think that, you know, the lesson I take away is surely now as a world, as a as a people, and especially in government, we can make it a very important criteria that someone be savvy about human history, have some knowledge mm -hmm. before we give them power. It can't simply be about rhetoric. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, but I also hold major corporate boards responsible. I find myself quite, you know, unimpressed by their professions of being, you know, very concerned about race and equity, because this problem has been there all along. We've all mm -hmm. been blind. We all need to examine our own hearts and try to find those places where we have been part of the problem. And I mm -hmm. think you, you need representation on boards, on governance, not just of people of color, but of people with a deep appreciation for history who can point out the lessons of not paying attention. 
That was Dr. Abraham Verghese, an infectious disease specialist with Stanford University and author of My Own Country, a doctor's story of a town and its people in the age of AIDS. So that's it from us for this week and for now. As we mentioned at the beginning of the show, this is going to be our last podcast for a while. You know, there's that feeling that we've somewhat exhausted ourselves for topics and Mm-hmm. We've had at this point that we've been through the big topics, um, and it's yeah. time to take a pause and you know maybe look at it again in the future, even if it's just coming back for the odd one-off as significant things change. But there's also a sense, yeah. I think, that the pandemic has to some degree normalized, that it's become part of the background of life rather than the the overwhelming thing that people think about every day. I mean, I know yeah. you know at the start there was that. You know, there were those weeks of thinking about nothing but the pandemic. And now mm-hmm. it's just part of of life. And yeah. whether that will continue to be the case or whether the impact of a, a second wave or, or the recurring first wave in America's case will bring it to the sort of forefront again of everybody's consciousness, uh, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll just see. I think one of the things, and, you know, thinking of this a little more optimistically, has just been that our capacity has grown, even in the United States, which, which has been a disaster zone, yeah. revealing like the rotten underpinnings of so much, so many failed institutions. But even here, you know, testing is massively up on what it was, mask wearing, all these, you know, the um, societies and people do do adapt and do find ways to, to cope with these things, even as it also normalizes this, uh, the horrendous toll. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And on that, on that cheerful note... <laughs> On that cheerful note, keep an eye on this feed in your podcast app because we we may drop back in the future um, when there are major developments or major changes in the course of this pandemic. In the meantime, everybody stay well, stay safe. I'm Amy McKinnon. And I'm James Palmer. Our show is produced by me and Darcy Palder. It is edited by Rob Sachs. Our web team includes Laurie Kelly and Kelly Kimball. The executive producer for news and podcasts at Foreign Policy is Dan Efron. Until we see you again, please remember to wash your hands. And don't touch your face. <sighs> okay. Well, lots of love to you and Ilan and, and Hercules and his tiny raspberry. Yeah, you take care. Belated happy birthday. Thank you, Pet. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.